Hello everyone, this is Shireen Gentry with the Identity Unveiled podcast. The title for today is Where is God? Your Identity Depends on It. It's paramount that I discuss your belief system. Each person wakes up every day with conscious and unconscious beliefs. That is, we live out our day by doing life with certain presuppositions, assumptions, beliefs, and perceptions. Rarely do we ever challenge our beliefs. We go about our day and our life from beliefs that have been previously shaped and formed. We wade through the currents of life until we hit an obstacle or a hardship in our journey, or it could be a crisis or even a trauma of some kind. And when crisis, if that's what has occurred in your life, has occurred, it will uproot your formerly held beliefs, questioned or non-questioned, unlike anything else. Why does it even matter? When we reach a critical point in our lives, regardless of what it looks like or how we got there, how we think about God, ourselves, others, and our experiences will most certainly be challenged whether we admit it or not. If there's an incongruence in our mind and in our heart, what we thought was supposed to happen in our lives, our beliefs will come to the surface. This can actually be a blessing if the crisis or hardship can cause us to reevaluate and reassess our formerly held beliefs, especially if these beliefs are not truthful or they may be lies of some kind. When I was going through my spiritual milestone year in 2002, God had a lot of internal work to take care of. He had to uproot the misbeliefs I had held for a lifetime. Where I had taken a misstep during my developmental years needed to be uprooted and then planted with truth. It was a total overhaul of my formerly held beliefs, which I had never challenged or questioned. What is the blessing or silver lining in hardship? If I can correct, or if you can correct, your belief system once and for all, then the time spent is not wasted. The crux of our beliefs boil down to what we do think about God, ourselves, and others. Do I think that who you think God is and who you are, are actually intertwined? Absolutely. And I will share some concepts from the disciplines of scripture and psychology that will speak to that very issue. So with this podcast, I would like to address the following categories. They all begin with the letter A. Number one are two approaches. These are different views about our spiritual lives and our psychological lives. The second one is awry. Where does our thinking go awry? And specifically, I'll be talking about where this happens in our early and developmental years. And then the third category is application. These are the action steps for spiritual and psychological well-being. So first, the category of approaches. There are many who believe that the disciplines of theology, 
spirituality, and our psychological lives are separate and compartmentalized. I do not, and I'll explain why from personal example and then also what the field of counseling tells us. Let me first address just a couple of the different approaches, and there are more than the ones I'm mentioning today, between the fields of theology and counseling. First of all, there's the nothing buttery approach. People in this particular camp disregard psychology altogether. They believe that all problems are a result of sinful living. I will not call out names here, but those who are in the ministerial and counseling fields of work know which leaders adhere to this approach. This particular model emphasizes exhortation and correction for change. In my opinion, this approach is too simplistic because it doesn't take into account a person's unique upbringing or internal processing of their own life experiences. Another approach is what's called the separate but equal idea, which means that spiritual and psychological problems are completely separate. So if someone has a spiritual concern, they go to a pastor. If they have a psychological concern, they go to a counselor. This is not inherently a negative thing, but what if What if our internal spiritual condition and our psychological distress could be addressed at the same time? I think it can. So how does our thinking get off track? Where does it go awry? As a side note, if you are currently living through a major life stressor at the current time, Remember that your experience, whatever it is that you're going through, is interpreted by the previously held way that your thinking brings to that current event. So whatever your thought patterns have been to your major life stressor until the time that stressor occurs, you bring your thinking, your current way of thinking and looking and perceiving the world and your experiences to that stressor. That can either be a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing. For the purpose of this podcast, I would like to share how our beliefs begin early. If you are currently struggling with who God is, I think we need to take a step back and look into our early development years to see how and why things went awry. So I'm actually calling this awry in attachment. Sometimes things occur in our lives at an early age that we absolutely have no control over. Think about your own life. What are some examples of what you were exposed to? Perhaps it was alcohol misuse and abuse, Were there addictions? Was there abuse of some kind, physical, emotional, sexual? Was it a major life stressor at a young age? What are some key points to consider when, as adults, there seems to be internal chaos when it comes to our beliefs about God, ourselves, others, our experiences, our past, our present, our future lives? 
How do we make sense of it and what happens along the way for this disconnect to take place? Here's where I share my ideas about our spiritual and psychological lives intertwining and how it happens. Let me first talk about the concept of attachment. I write about this topic briefly in my book, Identity Unveiled. Specifically, in infancy, for any infant and their primary caregivers, attachment, the ability to bond emotionally with your caregivers, starts very early. I talk about the attachment issue in my own life when an American general who worked with the Shah advised my mother, my adopted mother, to not show a photograph that he had sent of himself with the Shah to me, as it would create a trauma. So what he's referring to is this counseling concept known as attachment. And what he's talking about is if I were to see that photo of the Shah, if I had not been around the Shah, then it would actually elicit no emotion for me. So he's referring to either a positive reaction or a negative reaction of me seeing a primary caregiver. So it begins early as an infant and through our formative years with how our primary caregiver responds to our needs. How we bond emotionally, our attachment, can either be a negative or a positive experience. As we grow, especially in our childhood years, we develop a set core of beliefs about ourselves and God and others. So these are the questions that we ask ourselves of those people in our lives. Am I seen by you? In other words, can I really be me when I'm around you? Am I safe with you? And am I secure with you? Overlapping and reframing questions are how we judge if others are ultimately trustworthy. Are they available? Are they accessible? If others consider us worthy, and are they even reliable people in our lives? If our primary caregivers fulfill these core needs of being loved and safe, we will learn that we can seek closeness with them trusting loving relationship furthermore in this relationship we learn how to deal with our emotions our frustrations all the while learning how to live within boundaries for our protection we learn to explore our world within loving limits knowing that boundaries are there for our ultimate protection and safety so as children we ask ourselves if we are lovable and getting the love we want and need we ask ourselves, am I lovable? Am I accepted? Am I getting the love I need? Am I trustworthy? Am I accessible? Am I safe? And are you, as my primary caregiver, are you all these things as well to me? Of course, I'm speaking about the ideal here. This is called a secure attachment. There are other types of attachment that are not secure attachments, which I will not be discussing today. But I would like to say that I grew up with emotional security. I did not, and maybe you didn't either. As a result, I learned early that my experiences in my environment did not provide a safe haven for my emotions. 
In fact, because of my environment, I didn't know what to do with my feelings. So the easiest thing was for me to simply ignore them. Although I discussed this topic in my book, I didn't go into this specific detail, but I can remember at the age of four, my father was away serving in the Vietnam conflict. And I can remember um, being with my mother um, in a, a new place with certain things going on. And I'm sure she thought that I was too young to actually remember, but I actually can recall it with vivid detail even at the age of four. But my perception from an early age was that I was not in a safe environment based on the behaviors that I remember being surrounded by. In turn, this was continued and perpetuated throughout my childhood until I went to live with my grandmother at the age of eight. Even then, I was still exposed to the way my parents did life, and I began two ways of dealing with what I saw and experienced. First, I began to repress my emotions. And second, I questioned why God allowed these things. Specifically, I can recall asking my grandmother why God had given me the parents that he had because I had always known that I was adopted. I was thankful for that, but it it further uh, made the whole concept of why God had given me these parents. She was never able to answer this. So her inability to help me process this crucial question, my belief that God was distant and uninvolved became a way, an ineffective way of dealing with my unsettled negative emotions. The interesting point is that we not only ask these questions of our security to the primary caregivers in our lives, but if we have certain experiences at a young age, we also ask God these same questions. Or maybe we ask them now. Are you safe? Are you reliable? Are you trustworthy? And we usually get into trouble when we think that God is not safe, not reliable, and not trustworthy. We develop a set of beliefs that actually become the framework for how we do the other relationships in our life, the other close relationships in our life. So what happens along life's way that gets us into trouble with our relationship rules about God and others? Here are some key points that I really want you to think about and ponder in your own life narrative. Number one, at a young age, Our emotions and our cognitions, what we believe, are formed together. Think about this. Think about what your own experiences have been in your personal backstory, in your family of origin, and what were you feeling? What were you exposed to? What did you experience? And what were you feeling? Keep in mind that your experiences leads to your feelings which then shape your beliefs. This is crucial that you know this. Number two, while you're young, you do not have the cognitive capacity to challenge your forming set of beliefs. You're not able to challenge them, whether they're true or whether they're not. 
you just accept them as is. So my, my forming belief that God is distant and uninvolved, I just came through the years to accept that as an as-is belief. It's just who God was. Number three, whether we realize it or not, we begin to carry these misbeliefs into adulthood. If our primary caregivers fulfill these core needs of being loved and safe, we learn that we can seek closeness with them in trusting, loving relationship. Furthermore, in this primary relationship, we do learn to deal with our emotions and frustrations. But if we have not been able to be in a safe, secure environment, then what happens? As young children, we then aim to self-protect. I began to self-protect my feelings and beliefs by minimizing what these experiences did to me emotionally. And this continued well into adulthood and years after I got married. But because faith had been an integral part of my upbringing while living with my grandmother, I learned how to veneer my negative feelings with spiritual platitudes, thereby minimizing the effects that disappointments along life's journey, especially in my young years, and early memories had created deep within the recesses of my heart and mind. It is natural, therefore, that I didn't know who I was and who could be trusted, who could not be trusted, God included. No sense of healthy security provided the framework for emotional wellness and spiritual wellness because the two do go hand in hand. Many times if you are spiritually well, you're emotionally well. Many times if you are emotionally well, you are spiritually well. And the two work in tandem. As you improve in one compartment in your life, you actually can improve in the other. Thus, the intertwining of our emotional and spiritual lives can start early. So if you did not grow up with the security that you needed, do not be in despair. What happens in adulthood? This leads me to the most important section of this podcast, application. What are the necessary action steps we must take to reach a place of truth, wholeness, and peace regardless of our upbringing? There are times that I catch myself in my old thinking patterns of asking why. But really, all that does is land me in a negative emotional place when I think back to my backstory and I have to keep reminding myself that I've already done the hard work of changing my life story. But how did I do that? Well, here's the application. These are the things that I want you to first know and then to take action on in your own life. Step one, know that pain blocks your ability to feel God close. Whether it's something from your past or whether it's something currently that you're going through. Just because you may not feel him close doesn't mean that he isn't. In fact, scripture is very Um, poignant uh, speaks to this in in such a powerful way that God is close to the brokenhearted. 
So what would taking steps toward God actually look like for you? Would it be to spend more time in prayer? Would it be to think about what Scripture is? Um, Because actually, Scripture is what gives us the truth of our situation, rather us believing a misbelief or a lie of some kind. What would it take for you to take a step toward God? Whether you admit it or not, your vertical relationship with Him affects your horizontal relationships. You can't love to your fullest capacity without first taking steps toward God and finding out who He really is in your life narrative. If you have felt Him distant and disconnected, then guess what? You are going to suffer in your own identity. Because what that's going to do is, in turn, you are going to label yourself that you have been a victim, that you have been dealt a raw deal. And so as your belief in God goes awry, so does the belief of yourself go awry. So the first step would be taking steps toward God to know who He really is in your life narrative. When you do this, you will actually create a secure, truthful attachment to God in your hardship. And it will also promote a more secure attachment to others in your life. Step number two, watch your self-talk about God, self-talk about yourself, and self-talk about others. To tell yourself God doesn't care is a paralyzing misbelief that will completely prevent your healing. Find scripture that speaks to the contrary about who God is and who you are, your worth, your value, that speaks truth to your identity. If you don't know where to start, please begin by reading the entirety of Psalm 139. Let the words soak in into your heart, into your mind, until you finally believe them. What can you find that in fact and truth tell you that God does care, that he is with you every step of the way? Step number three, begin to look at your life from an existential framework. Ask yourself, how can God use this experience rather than asking Why has this happened? Asking why will not only not change your circumstances, meaning it doesn't change the outcome, even if you knew the reason why. He may or may not answer this. You're asking the wrong question. And doing so will certainly keep you stuck, whether it's in a current life stressor, if you're asking the question why, it'll keep you chained to your backstory if you keep asking the question why. Rather, ask yourself, is this experience to be used for a greater good? Step number four, think back. Back to your backstory. Be honest with God. This is a simple coaching exercise. What did you legitimately need in your upbringing that was not provided? How does it make you feel that these core needs were perhaps not met for whatever reason? 
Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Step five, think differently. We know that you can transform and change your thinking about God, about yourself, and about others. And when you do so, you create new neural pathways in your brain. This concept is known as neuroplasticity. This wonderful promise is provided in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when we're actually commanded, be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is a command. When we actually do the hard work of changing how we look at things or people and change our faulty perceptions, the promise is that we will know what God's perfect and pleasing will is for our lives. So that one area of scripture tells me that yes, our spiritual lives and our psychological lives are certainly entwined. When you learn to think differently, what would it be like to see your primary caregivers in a healthy balance with fond memories along with those that aren't pleasant? You see, I can now look back at my backstory and I can remember the good, I can remember the bad. And this provides a healthy balance for reframing what has occurred in my life. Ask yourself, what could have occurred in your primary caregiver's own backstory that perhaps they never healed from? I go into much detail about this in my book. I hope you've got a copy. It's still available on Amazon for $10. And I ask life coaching questions that you can process and think about your own life narrative. But again, there's backstory, and then there's the hard work of changing the story, which leaves you with the responsibility of landing with a different outcome. But knowing what occurred in your own family's life can be very helpful in shaping how you move forward. Although this doesn't change the situation, it changes your perspective on your situation because it gives you a broader understanding and insight, thereby resulting in peace that replaces the, the chaos. Step six, take responsibility instead of turning to blame. Blame is always easier because when we blame, we don't have to think about ownership of what we are responsible for in our own life story. We're actually letting someone else write our life story for us as long as we continue to blame. Step number seven, what you do to heal the past will hinge on your ability to connect well and intimately with the important people in your present. So just knowing that what you do to arrive at a place of peace and wholeness with your backstory will actually affect positively what is going on in your present life and in your future life with all the people in your life. And most importantly, um, step number eight, learn to separate your experience from who you are. Your identity, your value, your worth, is separate and apart from your life experience. A couple of examples 
or grief. You are not grief. It's just your experience. Cancer is not your identity. It's just your experience. Trauma, whatever shape and form that takes in your life, is not your identity. It's just your experience. But these are some action steps in moving closer to God and to others. Take steps to get to know who God really is. When you do, you discover who you really are, a daughter of the King of Kings who longs for your redemption and restoration so you can rest in your identity. He wants this to be settled for you once and for all. Do you? I would like to close by actually reading page 101 of my book. And what they are, are identity unveiled promises using the acrostic, each letter in the word identity. I. God made me for a specific person that is individualistic and incomparable. D. It's not what I do, but what Christ has already done. What he has done. Keep in mind that on the cross, not only was he there for our own misgivings and our shortcomings and our failures, he was also there to crucify and kill all those shortcomings of other people who've had effect on your life. We keep resurrecting what he wants to put to death. It's what Christ has already done. E, God will not waste my life experiences. N, I can change my negative perceptions with God's help. T, God is completely safe, loving, and trustworthy. I, my old self-image and my image of God can be exchanged for correct images. T. I can use my God-given and acquired talents as I share my life experiences with others. And then why? I can say yes to being available for His purposes. Dear friends, in God's economy, nothing is wasted. But sometimes you may have to do the hard work to change your story for his glory. If you have any questions, please drop me an email at hopeunveiled at gmail, and I will be happy to address any concerns that you have. Until next time, this is Shireen with the Identity Unveiled podcast.